0: As Christine said, my name is Ben Dockery, and I'm uh, the campus pastor here at Lake Forest. And this morning, we're going to spend some time talking about the topic of work. And I'm excited about this one because, uh, for me, work has been one of those sort of defining uh, aspects of my life. So far, some of the greatest moments of my life have happened in the workplace. Uh, for me, some of the moments of pride in a good way, accomplishing something. Uh, moments of pride in a negative way, Arrogance. I uh, have shown up there. So I've learned a lot in the workplace. Some of the biggest mistakes I've made so far um, have actually happened inside of the workplace. And so I've been able to think about that and reflect on that quite a bit as we come into this morning. One of the things I was doing um, was just reading articles and looking around in, in the uh, latest edition of the Harvard Business Review. So the July August edition, a cover story says, When Work Has Meaning. So I wanted to read this article and see what they're saying. And it's a, it's a story about an energy company that, uh, as any cover story in Harvard Business Review is going to do, tripled their stock price, employee engagement that was really low, shot through the roof. But how is it that they did it, right? How is it that this company made this change? And, and what they're arguing is that they changed the way that the employees inside the company viewed work. And a couple of phrases stuck out to me from the article. And the first one um, was this, is that conventional economic logic teaches you to view employees as self-interested agents. So those that are inside of your business or you as an employee inside of your business or inside of your company are a self-interested employee. That's how you're coming to work. And secondly, as business school and experience show, work is fundamentally contractual. And they said, is there a way that we can approach uh, these basic assumptions that people have about their work, and can we change them? And if so, how would that impact the way that our company works? Um, works, and how, how would that impact uh, the way that we as employees are engaged inside of our work. And so sure enough, they go about trying to make work more, less about the contract side of it and more about uh, the purpose side of it. And so purpose ends up driving performance, and it's a great thing. So I'm not going to tell you how your company can triple its stock price. That's not my job this morning. But I am asking the same question that the authors are asking. That is, how do you view work? And more specifically than how you view work, I'm asking the question, how does God view work? W- what does God think about work? Does he think It's good. Does he think it's bad? Is, is work a, a um, you know, punishment for us? Is it a test for us? Is God indifferent? Does he care at all? Does he care what you do? Does he care how you do it? Does he care why you do the things that you do inside your workplace? So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, and we're going to be looking in the book of Exodus. So before we get to Exodus, I have some assumptions about people in the room uh, that I'll go ahead and get out on the table. And one of those is that some of you think about work as a really good thing. You love work. It gives you energy, a purpose. It gives you relationships. You're there, right? Some of you think of work like some of the old country songs, you say work's a four-letter word, right? W-O-R-K. That's what I mean by that. Um, But some of you think you view it differently, right? right? Uh, Some of you think, oh, work's rearview mirror, right? I'm done with work. I've made my contribution there. I'm on to the next phase of my life. Some of you think about work as, as, um, as something that really gives you identity, who you are. You Actually, when you think about yourself, you can't think about yourself without saying, I am a teacher, right? I am a pilot. I am a medical doctor, right? I am a fill-in-the-blank, whatever that is. And so work has all these different um, explanatory values for who we are and help us orient ourselves to ourselves. So what we want to do is we want to look at the Scriptures and see what it is that God uh, thinks about work and how he views it. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. If you're using one of those antique paper Bibles underneath the pew there, it's on page 55. So if you want to flip one of those, page 55 is where we're going to be, Exodus chapter 1. And as you're turning there and as you're finding that, uh, just a couple things. Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament, and it really is this um, incredibly important story that happens inside of the Scriptures. As God tells us who he is and he tells us how he's working inside of the world, you actually can't understand the rest of the Bible unless you begin to see some of the things that show up inside of Exodus. So words like saved words like rescue, words that we sing in our songs uh, this morning. When we take communion later on, this is coming as a result of the Passover that shows up inside of Exodus. As Christine mentioned, the Ten Commandments are here. As Brad talked about last week, worship in the tabernacle, the temple. They get their start inside of this Exodus story, so it's a very significant book. And before any of those important elements to the narrative show up, I want to get into Exodus chapter 1. Uh, it's something that's skipped over quite a bit, and I want to look at uh, the beginning of the story. And I have one more disclaimer before I read it. And that is, so far I've been talking about work primarily in terms of what you would think of as employment, right? You would think of as compensation work. But actually, when we're looking at the Scriptures, and the rest of the time in this sermon, when I'm referring to work, I'm not just talking about compensation, I'm talking about contribution, So when God views work, he's talking about when you make anything, when you contribute anything, when you create anything, whether it's paid or whether it's unpaid, right? No matter what that is, so whether you're retired or whether you're unemployed, no matter where you are in that, when you're making things, if you got up this morning and you ground up some beans and you put them in this little thing and put hot water on top and there was coffee and you poured it, you cultivated the earth, even this morning making that. So you were working, you were creating according to the definition or the broader picture. So that's how I'll be referring to work throughout the rest of the sermon. All right, Exodus chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. Should be on the screen as well. And it says this Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in number and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came in power in Egypt. Look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, and they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies. Fight against us and leave the country. In other words, labor leaves, power goes down, comfort goes away. We have to stop that, as Pharaoh is saying. So, verse eleven. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithon and Ramses store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter. With harsh labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields, and in harsh labor, and the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So, what I think that we see inside of this passage is that I think there's three different clues that we're going to look at for how it is that God uh, views work. And then I want to close the sermon this morning with a case study. So, just right out of your business class, some of you, or right, You want to finish with a case study to understand how this is going to work. So, we're going to uh, jump to verses 15, 16, and look at these two women that close out. Uh, Exodus chapter 1. So the first clue that we see here actually shows up in verse 7, and it's one of the first several times that I was reading this, I completely missed it, so that's why I'm calling it a clue. And that is in verse 7, you see uh, this phrase. I don't know if you can see on the bottom, it says this, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied. See those words that are underlined there? The end is they filled them. So, potentially, when you read that verse, there's something that you have an association with. If you're a Bible reader, if you've been studying the Bible for a while, you've been going to church, that phrase may show up as something that's meaningful to you. If I was going to tell you about my granddad, and I said, four score and seven years ago, my grandfather, da-da-da-da-da, and told you about his life, right? If I described him that way, you would associate that phrase with Abe Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address, right? You would immediately, because of the wording and the phrasing that I, that I said about him, you would associate it with something else. And what Lincoln's doing there in the middle of the war is he's saying, hey, back to the original intent, right? Back to the Declaration of, of Independence. The reason we are a free nation, I'm drawing your attention back to why we we're a free society to begin with right here in the middle of this war. And what I see in Exodus chapter 1 as we start this is we actually we see it drawing back to an, an, the original intent, God's original intent for work as well in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, when God makes the world, he uses this same uh, language that's used there. So Genesis 1, 22 says, God blessed them, and he made, it's, he's talking about the fish, and he's talking about the birds in the air, and he says that he made them uh, to, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the waters and the seas. And then he makes humans, right? He makes humanity, Adam and Eve, and what does he say? Genesis 1, verse 28, he says it again, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and then he adds a phrase that says to subdue the earth. In other words, to create inside of it, to to work, to be my—in Genesis 2, it says garden keepers, right? To tend and to work the garden in which you are there. So you see this phrase, and the fish and the birds are not asked to subdue the earth. They're not asked to tend the garden. But the humans that are dropped in the world to represent God are asked to work, and they're asked to work where? Inside of paradise, so far in Genesis chapter 1, nothing has happened wrong. Nobody's violated God's rule. Nobody said, I know better than you, God. I'm going to do it my way. They're living in the paradise that God has created, the garden. And what are they doing inside of the garden? They're working, right? They are working inside of the garden. Now, I don't know about you, but if I ask you, I want you to dream up paradise, okay? I want you to think about your utopian state, whatever that's going to be. And I want to ask you, inside of that, are you picturing one of the key characteristics to be that you will work when you get to paradise, right? Right? Maybe not. That may not be the way that you view it. There's a pastor named Tom Nelson who uses an analogy uh, of the movie WALL-E. I don't know if you can remember back to this cartoonish movie. But WALL-E is this character. And one of the things they do is that, uh, is that the robot gets to go to this, um, this utopian world. And inside of this world, they make all these wonderful promises. You're not going to have to work. You're going to have to move a finger inside of this world. And so if you want to go from one place to another, they have these little... Comfortable chairs that come pick you up and they take you from one place to another. And if you want something to drink or to eat, you just say it and whoosh, something delivers it to you right there. I mean, you don't have to do anything. This is unbelievable. You want to play golf? <sighs> virtual screen drops down. You can play virtual golf right there without getting inside of your outside of your chair at all. Right? It's wonderful. Except for what happens is, as you see inside of the movie, is that. They begin to uh, not have the muscular development, right? They, they look like these giant uh, babies that are inside of these chairs. And when a guy rolls out, he's not able to get back in because he doesn't have the strength to get off his back because he's stopped working. He's stopped using the muscles that he has. Same with their brains. It's like their brains turn to mush. Because why? Every decision has been made for them. They're not contributing. They're not making. They're not creating. They're not accomplishing anything. And as a result of that, uh, they become creatures who are no longer useful. And and what he's doing is obviously saying that actually may not be the utopian state that all of us would want. That may not be paradise to find a place where you're not actually working. Because Genesis chapter one tells us that God's original intent for work is God's original intent for us as humans is that we work inside of the world. Now, if that's true, there are tons of implications as a result of that being true. If God's designed us from the very beginning that we should be workers. Well, oh my goodness, that changes a lot of the things that we do and a lot of the ways we view uh, the way that we do what we do. So there's three that I want to highlight, okay? There's a lot more, but there's three I want to highlight. The first one is this. The first one is that means that there's not varsity workers and junior varsity workers. In God's economy, in God's world, there's not... The real jobs, and then there's the sub-jobs, okay? So that means at two levels. One, that means economically, on our bottom of the ladder, top of the ladder, if you want to think about that. In God's view, work can have dignity no matter where you are in, in the, uh, the employment scale or the non-employment scale, right? As a worker, as a contributor, as somebody who makes, as somebody who uses their time, stewards their time that God has given them to work and contribute, you're on the varsity team, period, that also means that unlike the church and many of the maybe the traditions that you may have grown up in, I understood that there was varsity and junior varsity because those that stood up here on stage and were the preachers, that was the varsity squad. Those are the ones that God really blessed their work, they had the purposeful work, they had the meaningful work, and everybody else had a job so they could tithe and let the preachers have a job, right? That's kind of how I viewed it. And, and the missionaries. We've got to make sure that we send the missionaries as well. But in God's world, the way that He created it, He's saying that no. I am calling everyone to do a task inside of the world. And because God is the one who calls you, then the tasks are equal in their dignity. The Reformation makes a huge deal out of this, and they use the word vocation, um, and they talk about because God is the one who has called you to the task that you have. Luther says whether you're the milkmaid or whether you're the clergy or the priest, both are equal in the sight of God if you're working for the glory of God. So the first implication is that there's this, there's this leveling playing field to work. The second one is if we're all in the varsity squad, that means we all get a varsity jersey. So uh, you, may have, um, you may have met somebody, right? Mom looks just like the daughter, and you say, hey, this is Sally, and this is Sarah, her daughter. Oh, my goodness, Sarah's the spitting image of her mother, right? She looks just like her mom because she's the spitting image. And in Genesis chapter 1, we learned that when God makes people, what does he make them? He makes them, the language is inside of his own image. They are bearers of his image. He has placed them on in the world to tend the garden, to do his work, to represent him inside of the world. And so as we represent God in our workplaces, we need to reflect the character of our God. So God is a God who is honest, he tells the truth. He's a God who's creative. Right? He's, a, he's a God of order. He's, he's, he's a God of beauty. He makes things. Because God is this way, we inside of our workplaces, paid and unpaid, right, home and in the office, wherever it is that you're contributing, you should be representing God in the work that you do. You are uh, telling people about the character of God by the way that you work. You're wearing the jersey. You're representing him. And one of the things you're telling people is that, Uh, God himself is a worker. You're imitating him, right? Genesis chapter 1, when you see him, they're placed in the garden to tend it, but where did the garden come from? Oh, it says God himself made the garden. He worked to create the garden to put them in. So when we are working, we're actually imitating the God that we serve. Gods of other nations at this time would never have got their hands dirty in the dirt. They'd be far too above that. But we see God revealing himself, telling telling us who he is as somebody who starts out from the very beginning that God is a worker. So when we are working, when we're making things, we're acting like the God that we serve. So one, no JV in varsity. Number two, you're wearing the jersey. And number three, and some of you may want to disagree disagree with me on this, and that's fine. You can buy me lunch afterwards and explain uh, why you disagree with me. Um, But... If it's true that God's original intent was that we would be workers, then maybe we'll be working for all of eternity. Maybe it's true that when God recreates the heavens and the earth, and we move from a garden to a city, as Revelation says, that we may be working for all of eternity. We were driving, Julie and I were driving up to Wisconsin just a few weeks ago, and there was this wonderful sort of romantic farm scene off to the side, and I thought, you know, I would love one day to learn how to be a farmer, and I'd love to fill that silo with grain and work with the cattle and learn how to do horses and sheep and whatever else. And I know it's not the romantic uh, reality that I was picturing as I'm driving up the interstate, but... I told her, I said, you know what, I think I'm going to spend a thousand years of eternity learning how to be a farmer. That's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to spend a thousand years learning how to design baseball stadiums, right? And, And then after that, I'm going to learn how to be a chef for a couple thousand years. And then I'm going to spend the next thousand years doing whatever it is in my mind. Because I know I'm not going to accomplish everything I want to accomplish in my career, in my life, here in this world. But if it's true that God made us from the beginning in order to be workers, maybe when when he recreates the world and we live for eternity, maybe inside of that space, actually one of the ways we'll worship God is that we will worship him through the work that we do. Again, You can disagree with me on that one. But I think it's important that we think about it that way. So clue number one, God's original intent is that we would be workers. Number two... Inside of Exodus 1 here in verse 14, when it says Pharaoh and, and, the, um, and the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly, it uses this really interesting word for work, for labor that's there in verse 14. And it says this, They made their lives bitter with harsh labor, brick and mortar, all kinds of work inside of the fields. And this, uh, this word here, and I've, I, um, I, I passed Hebrew class when I was in seminary. But I don't remember it, just frankly. Um, so I didn't pick up on this when I read through it. But I read some books that, that raised this. And this word work here is this interesting word that says avodah is the name of the word. And avodah has multiple meanings um, uh, of what it means. And so you see it in other places in Scripture. There's a guy named David Miller, and he's the head of the Faith and Work Center at Princeton. Um, and he was just recently here in Lake Forest speaking, giving a lecture at another church, and he's the president of the Avodah Institute. He named his institute this Hebrew word uh, because he sees that there is this connection uh, between work and worship or service. So this word has multiple meanings. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2 when it says work the garden. It's the same word that's used in Exodus chapter 8 when Moses is going to take the people out into the wilderness in order to worship the Lord their God. They're going to avodah the Lord their God. Joshua chapter 24, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, that verse, you may be familiar with it. As for me and my house, we will avodah the Lord, right? So it's one context, it's work. One context, it's worship. One context, it's serve. It's this word that's, that's loaded up with meaning and helps us, I believe, understand God's intention for work. And that is that work is an act of worship. Um, if you look at the Department of Labor or, you know, go look at some of these bureau stats, you can find them anywhere, You're going to see that the majority of people in the Western world specifically spend most of their time, more time, in. Uh, Workplace than they do anywhere else. And that's not even talking about the work, quote, that that I'm saying that they do at home or uh, other places in the world. But just in their employment, they're going to spend more time in that category of their life than they will in anywhere else. Sometimes sleep beats work, but uh, you're on the North Shore, so I know that that's inverted the other way around, okay? And so it means that the majority of your life, you're going to be spending, you're going to be investing inside of work. So the question that David Miller asks inside of the Institute is, does God care about that majority aspect of your life? Does God have anything to say about that? And specifically, he says this, is that for most churches and most people, there's a huge gap in between Sunday and between Monday. We think about Sunday as we're driving in, we're commuting in to worship, and Monday we're driving in, we're commuting in to work. And he's saying, what if you understood that this beautiful, meaningful, rich word, Avodah, meant both work and worship. And so Monday morning when you're commuting into your worship place, you're clocking into your place of worship, because God sees the work that you do as worship. He cares about the majority of your life. Uh, There's an executive named Ken Eldred who wrote a book uh, trying to put this together, and he said, I succeeded really well in business. I did well, and I got to a point in my career where I realized that I had this very disintegrated life. I had I had compartments in my life. I had God on Sunday. Everything else was kind of work. And so I I wanted to go about fixing that task. And so he wrote a book called The Integrated Life. And and he looks at how is it that that what happens on Sunday spills into Monday and goes all the way through the end of the week, right? That God could have as much to do with what he does Monday through Friday as God has to do with what he does on Sunday. And so he says um, that you can't leave God at home. I used to, to quote him, I used to uh, go to work like I'd put my coat on in the morning. And when I'd wear my coat, I'd wear it all week long. And when I'd come home at the end of the week, I'd take my coat off. And it was like I had my work coat on. And when i go to church on Sunday, I'd put my God coat on. But I wouldn't let my God coat be worn Monday through Friday. But he's saying, I have to integrate this piece of my life because I understand that work is a part of how we worship. Now, in society today, you've likely been told a different story of the purpose of work. And if you're depending on what generation you're in, you get different messages on this, right? There, there are are prevailing narratives inside of society that tell you how you should view work. They're happening to you. So if you're a boomer in here, most likely you were told that you should find identity inside of your work. You should find financial security inside of your work. So it's important to get a good job and to get a good job that will pay you good money so that you can have financial security. And so boomers, are are, uh, they help develop the word workaholism, right? I mean, they learn to work, and they learn to work hard, and they they made a lot of wealth as a result of it. And, And boomers oftentimes sacrifice their health. For their work. They oftentimes sacrifice their family for their work. They oftentimes sacrifice these other meaningful things inside their life for their work because they wanted to have financial security. They wanted to have identity inside of their work. So they're accused of not having work life balance, right? That's there. They say, oh yeah, you have work life balance. You got the work side, but you totally left the life side out of it, right? That's who you are as a generation. Well, the millennials come along, and they are not going to make that same mistake, right? So they're not going ha- to mess with work-life balance. They're going to have a work-life blend, right? They're going to blend it all up together. And so in the middle of their work, right, you can just send a text to a friend real quick, you can check social media on your phone. Because why? Because your world, you get, to, you get to wrap it all up. And in the middle of your work day, you can be on social media, and that's okay. You can text your friends, and that's okay. Because the, the, you want to blend your life up. And what you want to do is, is you want to have meaning and purpose in life. You don't want to just make a company that sells coffee. You want to make a company that sells coffee and help somebody on the other side of the world, right? You're going to have purpose inside of your work. And so the millennials are changing this. And in, in both instances, and, you know, with the millennials, the accusation is not that they've overworked, but that when they go home from work, You can blend at work during the day, but don't ask me to do any work at night because that's my personal time, right? Blending only works one way, and it's while I'm in the office. That's the frustration. So hopefully I've offended everybody that's in here today. That's part of my point. Uh, As a Gen Xer, we were right in between you guys, and we got it perfect. So uh, Gen X, we figured it out. No, the point is this. The point is that it's oftentimes very easy uh, to mistake not work as an act of worship, but to begin to worship the work that we have. Every generation does it, and they do it differently. They begin to worship the work that they have. They begin to look for identity inside of their work. They begin to look for a name of who they are inside of their work. They, be, they begin to look for things that work itself is not created in order to give us. Uh, Studs Terkel, I don't know if you remember this name, but Studs Turkle was an author. He was from Chicago, radio host, and he wrote a book called Working. And he interviewed hundreds of people, and he just asked them the question, how do you feel about your work? And it's a very raw book. I mean, it's, it's, um, people just share everything that they feel and think and experience they've had. It's fascinating to look into. But one of the quotes when I was, when I was uh, reading it, preparing for this sermon, one of the quotes that stood out to me was an executive, and this is what he says. He says, um, I used to work for a corporate chief, uh, and this guy worked conservatively 19 to 20 hours a day. His whole life was his business. He demanded the same of his executives. There was nothing sacred in his life except for the business. Meetings would be called on Christmas Eve, be called on New Year's Eve, on Saturdays, on Sundays. He was lonesome. And when he wasn't involved in his, in his business, uh, he was lonely. So he would call up his flunkies at work, and he would have, have them come to him where they were so that they could continue to work because his work was his life. Now, this is a secular guy just describing somebody he used to work for, but what he gets at is this. He gets at the idea that we can replace the purpose of life with work, and it's very easy for people to do that. It's very easy to flip the equation, not so that work would be something that's an act of worship to God, but so that work becomes the God itself. Now, um, I got to this point in the sermon, and I'm thinking to myself, all right, I've just said work is this wonderful thing that God created, and we may do it for all eternity. And then work is an act of worship. And then I pictured myself giving this sermon to the Israelites. Pictured myself giving this sermon to these people that are under Pharaoh's rule, that it describes them as their life is bitter and work is harsh, and right, things are not good as a result of that. And then I thought, I'm missing a big point. So clue number three is this, work is hard. <laughs> Uh, it's described here in Exodus chapter 1 as being hard, and you know this from your own experience, right? Paid work, unpaid work, it's frustrating, and it's hard. And why is it? How does God view that aspect of work as well? Well, in back to the Genesis account, you see that as soon as Adam and Eve violate uh, God's way, and they say, hey, we know how to do it better than you do, God, so we're going to do what you said not to do, God had already made a promise to them that if you do this, there is going to be a result for that. And, and so in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, you see that one of the things that happens after Adam and Eve uh, disobey or run on their own way after, after God, they, you see this, God actually shows up and he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat the food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. There's this sobering statement that God says there is a curse that has been placed upon the world. The earth is broken. The efforts toward work are going to be shattered and going to be broken because of the sin and the rebellion of humanity. God takes sin seriously. And we get a reminder of that every single day when we try to accomplish something, when we try to make something, when our team tries to come together and make something happen, and we get frustrated in the midst of doing that, right? You used to be able to, to go tend the garden, and the fruit would come up, and fruit would, would uh, show up on the trees as a result. Now, you go to get the carrot out of the ground, and you clip your finger with a thorn or with a thistle, and there's blood that's rolling down your finger, and you see it, and you go, oh, yeah, I serve a God who keeps his promises. There is a God who takes sin seriously, and he takes his promises seriously as well. So when we experience the difficulty of work, one aspect of that is actually to understand that we live inside of a broken world, a world that uh, God has already begun to judge. Now I want to close with the case study. So clue number one is God's real intent. He made us to be workers. We get to worship as we work, and then work is very difficult. It's very hard, and there's reasons for that. And then you see this case study at the end. You see these two uh, Israelite women, and they're told by Pharaoh that they're doctors and nurses uh, called midwives here in the text. And, and uh, he says, when there's an Israelite, a Hebrew boy that's born, I want you to kill the baby boy. If it's a girl, you can let them live. But I want you to kill all the boys because he, they're trying to keep down on the population so Israel doesn't become too strong and could potentially overthrow Egypt. And so these two women have a choice to make, right? They have an ethical dilemma. They've been told by their boss and by the commander, the one in control, the one who has power over their lives, that they need to act and live a certain way. So they're faced with this dilemma. How is it that they're—who are, are they going to choose to worship, right, in the midst of this? And before you see Aaron or Moses become the hero inside of Exodus, you see these two women. And if you're a careful Bible reader, you'll often see that women show up as the heroes in the story before anybody else does, and it's no different in Exodus chapter 1. These two women, these two midwives, choose not to obey Pharaoh, not to do what he says, but they let the baby boys live, and they hand them over to mom and dad. So Pharaoh shows up and says, why have you let these children live? And shrewdly they respond, and they say, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They have babies much faster, and so we're not able to do anything before, uh, you know, we're not able to step in before the babies are born, and so that just goes on. And And we don't exactly know the reasons why, but the text says that God blesses the women for what they do, and they are able to live in the midst of this because they lived as if God was the true king, as if God was the true boss, as if he was the one that was setting the rules, not uh, the boss of this life, not the king of this life. So how is it that Shifra and Puah, how is it that these two women are able to follow God in the midst of a very difficult ethical decision? How is it that you, yourselves, are able to follow God's ways in your work at home or in the workplace, right? Paid or unpaid work, employment. How is it that you are able to act as if God is truly the king of your life and that God is really the one that you are working for? Well, I'd invite you to remember back the fact that God is the first worker and that you act like God when you work. And that God's greatest work is actually not the creation of the world itself, but it's the recreation of the world. Because what God did is, even though he's placed a curse on the, work, on the world, he has now come in and he has broken the curse of death inside of this world. And he did it by becoming a human himself, right? So the, Jesus, uh, the story is that God becomes flesh. And in the form of his son, Jesus, he comes to the earth and he recreates the world through his death. He takes the death and the curse that God has given to the world, he takes it on himself in the cross. And so that his death now frees us to live as workers, to be a part of God's recreation of the world. We get to act like God. We get to know that God is the king because ultimately we are those who will inherit life. We don't live for this life only. And so if it looks like I'm going to lose my job now, if it looks like I'm going to lose my promotion now, if it looks like I'm going to lose whatever it is now, I don't have to hold on to that and break God's law. I can trust God because for all of eternity, I can be one who inherits eternal life. I can be one who inherits the life that Jesus won for me. And how did they remember that? Well, maybe they were at, they didn't have church, but maybe, maybe they were at a service and they were singing and they sang a song that says this. They said, riches I heed not. Nor man's empty praise. Thou art my inheritance, both now and always. Thou and Thou only, first in my life, high King of heaven, my treasure, my life. Maybe these two women were singing a song on Sunday that reminded them of who they are, that oriented them not just to what's happening right now, but oriented them what's happening for all of eternity, so that they could have a perspective that God is the true king. So when they showed up to work on Monday morning, they could act as if God is the king, and they could live for him because of the life that he won for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have plans for our life, that you know where we are in the midst of what may seem much more like living underneath Pharaoh That may seem like bitterness and harshness and uh, challenge and frustration and disappointment and discontentment inside of our work lives. And God, you see us in the midst of that, and you call us to be contributors. You call us to represent you. You call us to act like you here in this world. So we thank you that you uh, provided um, opportunities for us to make things to contribute things to f- find things in the earth uh, and to ha- create value out of them and to live. Thank you for the purpose that 's wrapped up inside of the work that we get to do and God, I pray for those that are in here that are um, experiencing frustration or deep questions about their work that you would meet them there that you 'd give them your wisdom. God for those uh, that are a place of great contentment and joy and enjoying it what it is they get to do. Um, God, I pray that you would give them a sense that that is your blessing and your hand of care. On their life of this season, and give them hearts of gratefulness for what they do, and help all of us, God, no matter where we are, help all of us to understand that we're working not because we're gaining an identity, but we're working because you've given us an identity. That we work as sons and daughters of the King, the King that will rule and reign for all eternity, not just now. So give us that perspective. Be our vision. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to close the service.